Good morning, Christ Central. My name is Michelle Hurlbert, and I'm a member of the Fort Mill Steel Creek Community Group. Um, I'm also a member of the Long Time Coughing Club, so I'm going to try to get through this without coughing. <clears throat> Today's scripture comes from Nahum, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, read from the New Living Translation. This message concerning Nineveh came as a vision to Nahum, who lived in Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all who oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. The Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great, and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. He displays his power in the whirlwind and the storm. The billowing clouds are the dust beneath his feet. At his command, the oceans dry up and the rivers disappear. The lush pastures of Bashan and Carmel fade, and the green forests of Lebanon wither. In his presence, the mountains quake and the hills melt away. The earth trembles and its people are destroyed. Who can stand before his fierce anger? Who can survive his burning fury? His rage blazes forth like fire, and the mountains crumble to dust in his presence. The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust in him, but he will sweep away his enemies in an overwhelming flood. He will pursue his foes into the darkness of night. Why are you scheming against the Lord? He will destroy you with one blow. He won't need to strike twice. His enemies, tangled like thorn bushes and staggering like drunks, will be burned up like dry stubble in a field. Who is this wicked counselor of yours who plots evil against the Lord? This is what the Lord says. Though the Assyrians have many allies, they will be destroyed and disappear. O oh, my people, I have punished you before but I will not punish you again. Now I will break the yoke of bondage from your neck and tear off the chains of Assyrian oppression. And this is what the Lord says concerning the Assyrians and Nineveh. You will have no more children to carry on your name. I will destroy all the idols in the temples of your gods. And I am preparing a grave for you because you are despicable. Look, a messenger is coming over the mountains with good news. He is bringing a message of peace. Celebrate your festivals, O people of Judah, and fulfill all your vows, for your wicked enemies will never invade your land again. They will be completely destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Central Church. Good morning, my name is Josh Kim, I'm a pastor here at Christ Central Church. We're glad you could join us this morning as we journey continuously in the book of, oh, the books of Minor Prophets. Whether you are joining us for the first time or you've been with us for a while, we'd love to share your journey with us as we walk with the Lord in this season. Um, I also want to say happy Black History Month. Today we celebrate uh, black history. I love this uh, actor and author, uh, Karen Parsons, who said black history isn't a separate history. This is all of our history. 
this is American history, and we need to understand that. I think she captures it correctly in saying that we celebrate this month, not particularly saying this is a separate history, but this is our history we celebrate. And we're actually doing that through a documentary, Unspoken, on Sunday mornings as well. So if you have time to join us for that on Sunday mornings throughout this month, we'll learn what it means to learn about a history of Christianity that has deep roots in Africa as well. We also are celebrating 20th year at Christ Central. Um, Happy anniversary, Christ Central Church. Yeah, 20 years. You can give a round of applause for that. Uh, Whether you've been here like six months or whether you've been here 20 years, God's been faithful. Amen? And we're going to celebrate not just one particular Sunday, but we're going to celebrate it throughout this year uh, with different studies. As you saw, there's a book study available called My Body is Not a Prayer Request we're going to do, as well as different speakers will come and share this pulpit. People who share this pulpit with you from before will come and share that, um, as well as we'll continue to pray and faithfully wait uh, for PST, PST and the work they're doing, and we are praying for God's faithfulness in the year ahead as well. Um, today, we're going to continue looking at Prophet Nahum, and as we saw from the series of the prophets before, the prophets not only spoke during the hard time, but their lives often embodied what it meant to live in the light of the difficult times here, and fittingly, Nahum means comforter, comforting, and this message of Nahum, we find God, the ultimate comforter in the midst of the world that we live in. So before we delve into this text, let's pray and ask God to comfort us with his presence as we hear the word of God preached this morning. Let's pray. Father, that's our prayer this morning as we gather that, Lord, you will comfort us in the midst of the challenges, in the midst of struggles. And as we look out into the world, the tears that are shed, we pray the ultimate comforter will be here with us as the Nahum reminds us, grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. Amen. It's needless to say there are evil in the world today. If you just turn the news this week, you see three American soldiers killed in Jordan. Over 11,000 children died in Gaza. Planes crash and kills Ukrainians as they continue in their struggle in war against Russia. Gas explosion that leaves three people dead. Brianna Gay's teen killers are named are just a few of those news reports that you turn this week. We all realize that evil is present in this world today and devastating effect it has on all of us. And it doesn't have to be the news reports that plague us. We also see the evil and effects of the evil around us in our daily lives too, don't we not? We see the systems of injustice, the evils of the greed of the ones that take advantage of the poor. And perhaps for the teenagers that are sitting here, what about the bullies that we see in schools? Especially when they, the evil ones, seem to get away with it and even flourish as a result of it. When those who cheat are still acing the test and get the coveted spot on the team. The age-old question of why would God allow evil to flourish? Why would God allow evil to exist? After all, if God is good God, as we saw, who loves his people and sent his son to die so that anyone who places their faith can have eternal life, then why would God, this good God, allow evil to happen? 
And as we journeyed through the various minor prophets thus far, we saw that evil is in fact not only found outside of us, it's also sometimes found inside of us as well in the form of sin. And God, the righteous judge, must punish sin. And it's not just for the sake of punishing sin, but we see that God is at work in the story of redemption in God's history, and God draws out the reasons for these things. But even as we struggle with God doing this in the midst of the history of humanity, we still have these questions in the minds of the people, don't we not? Whether you are a Christ follower, whether you're not, but will, why would God allow evil in the world to continue on is a question that you and I struggle with. And oftentimes we're, we're stumped when people ask, why does God allow this to happen? If God really, really loves us, why would the world be plagued with evil, especially when innocent people are suffering. When would this ever end? Even a renowned writer and theologian, C.S. Lewis, wrote, upon the death of his wife, he said, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. We struggle with this, do we not? And I'm not saying a great theologian like C.S. Lewis justifies those questionings, but it shows that no matter how much you might have studied the scripture, or no matter how much you have walked and journeyed with God, we struggle with the question of, why would God allow evil to flourish? And thankfully, Scripture does not shy away from this question. He doesn't just simply gloss over that question because the similar question is in the hearts of Israelites in the time of Nahum. Nahum is a prophet who worked in the kingdom of Judah during the time of Assyrian Empire was at height of its power. Remember the Assyrians? They were the ones that destroyed Israel, the northern kingdom. And they were the ones that invaded Judah and almost brought Judah to its ruins. Many scholars think at the time that Nahum prophesies in this time was in the time of Sennacherib, who invaded Israel in 2 Kings 18. We also remember Assyrians from time of Nineveh and story of Jonah. Here was a city that Jonah hated so much that did not want to go because of the oppression the city and the people represented. And we see this city receiving this amazing grace of God as we studied before through repentance. But we also note that this was short-lived as we find it here. You see, Nahum is writing and prophesying at the height of Assyrian power, and they're running over the nations and destroying them. Assyrians were known especially at this time for cruelty against other nations and symbolized by the acts of evil against men. And they have seen this Assyrians plunder and destroy their older, uh, the other brethren, northern kingdom, and the Judah, the two tribes that are left, now pondering over and wondering, God, how much longer are you going to let them plunder others? How much longer is this wicked and evil nation going to destroy our lives today? How much longer will evil flourish in this land? In the context of this prophecy, Nahum powerfully turns our attention to the Lord. 
And here we can find who God is through his prophecy. And we're going to do that by looking at the Hebrew word abar that is found at the beginning of Nahum chapter 1 verse 8. As well as at the very end, we didn't read this, in chapter 3 verse 19 where it reads, There is no healing for your wound. Your injury is fatal. All who hear of your destruction, sorry, it's not up on the slides, will clap their hands for joy. Where can anyone be found who has, suff- who has not suffered from your continual cruelty. That's how Nahum ends. So we're looking at two places where a bar, the Hebrew word is used. At the beginning, at the end, in English, it's translated as overwhelming and continual. But in its context, the actual, the word translated means pass over. The evil is passing over, overwhelming, as well as continuing on. As we see those things bracketing this book, we're going to look at those two words as we understand who God is, what God is doing, going to do with evil in this text. The first thing we see, coming from chapter 1, verse 8, is God sees evil passing over. God seeing the evil passing over. Theologian A.W. Tozer once said, God will hold us responsible to understand the mystery. Uh, God will not hold us responsible to understand the mysteries of election, predestination, and the divine sovereignty. The best and safest way to deal with this truth is to raise our eyes to God and in deepest reverence say, O Lord, thou knowest. Those things belong to the deep and the mysterious profound of God's omniscience, meaning all-knowing. Prying into them may take theologians Prying into them may make one a theologian, but you will never make one a saint. It's reminding us that ultimately God is in control and sees all things. And Nahum, in the opening verses, affirms that by reminding us God, in fact, sees evil passing over this world, and he will not stand it. Nahum chapter 1, verse 1 says, This message concerning Nineveh, came as a vision to Nahum who lived in Akash. The Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all who oppose him and continues to raise against the enemies. You see, the rest of Nahum, in light of that, it's God's plan of destruction against Nineveh. I don't know, if, I don't know about you, but as uh, Michelle was reading, this, sounded like a battle cry, doesn't it? God's got this. Just follow him. God's going to punish. And that's exactly what this is telling us. God's got this. God sees evil, and God is going to destroy the capital city of Assyria, Nineveh, the symbol of the power. The question for us is why, again, why again God is against evil? Because, as we have seen the time and time again, God is good God. Evil, according to God's ways, is at opposite of who God is. Theologian Don Carson writes, Evil is evil because it is in rebellion against God. Evil is a failure to do what God demands or the performance of what God forbids. It's a definition of sin. Evil is not who God is. It is anti-God. That's why God is explained by Nahum in chapter 1, uh, verse 3 and 7. Nahum said, this is who God is. God is not evil. Verse 3 says, the Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great. He never lets the guilty go unpunished. He displays his power in the whirlwind and the storm, the billowing clouds and the dust underneath beneath his feet. And verse 7 says, the Lord is good. The strong refuge when trouble comes is close to those who trust in him. And throughout minor prophets we saw, and throughout Nahum, God is clearly against evil. And evil is against God. Therefore, what God sees, and Nahum reminds us, 
is that God sees evil passing over the nations. God sees evil overwhelming the world. And at the time of Nahum, evil personified Assyrians overwhelming the Israelites. What Nahum reminded the Judeans, the kingdom of Judah, is I see it. I see the evil happening, and I will not let it be. I will not let it overwhelm you. One of my favorite movies that I love watching is Taken. It's an old movie, I know. And there's a lot of issues with that. I'm not getting into that. But one of the issues that I, I, I one of the lines I love is played by a character, Liam Neeson, when his daughter is abducted. This uh, retired, like, federal officer uh, tells uh, the, the, those who kidnapped the daughter this famous line. I know you guys like this line too, right? It's like, I don't know who you are. I can't say, I, I don't have his voice. I can't sound like him. But he says, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can't tell you I don't have money. But what I do have, a particular set of skills, skills I have acquired over a very long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, there will be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. And this is the best part, right? I will find you, and I will kill you, and you get chills. You're like, oh, yes, yes, that's right. And, you know, he does. He finds every single one of them, and he does exactly what he does with a particular set of skills he acquired. Church, you know where they get that idea? In Prophet Nahum. Do you know that? Because Nahum says, God not only sees evil, but he's got the particular set of skills to know where this evil exists and to find this evil and will kill this evil once and for all. And Nahum's prophecy tells us that. He says, evil personified in the uh, nation of Assyria will be run over. In starting in chapter 2, the complete destruction in detail is given by Nahum. Who needs a movie when you could read the scripture? Amen? <laughs> yeah? Yeah, so read the scripture, right? Chapter 2, verse 1 says, your enemy is coming to crush you, Nineveh. Man the rampart, watch the roads, prepare your defenses, call out your fortresses. Even though the destroyer has destroyed Judah, the Lord will restore its honor. Israel's vine has been stripped of branches, and he will restore its splendor. You see, the nation in which other nations trembled and fear no longer strikes fear in the hearts of other nations. And in chapter 3, verse 8 through 9, using, now talking about Assyrian's destruction, now he likens that to a formidable city that all knew about, Egyptian city of Thebes. And now what Nahum says is just like that city was overrun, you will eventually be destroyed. And it says in detail, again, I love this part because he tells you exactly how he's going to do it. In chapter 3, verse 12, he says, first of all, your army and strongholds will fail before God. All your fortresses will fail. They will be devoured like a ripe figs and fall into mouth of those who shake the trees. And he says, not only so. My destruction will be complete. Not only your army will be destroyed, your merchants, your economy will, will fail. Chapter 3, verse 16. Your merchants have multiplied until they outnumber the stars, but like the swarms of locusts, they strip the land and fly away. The economic system fails. But not only so, he says, finally, I'm going to destroy your government once and for all. Verse 17. Your guards and officials are like swarming locusts, they cloud together in the hedges of a cold day. But like the locusts that fly away when the sun comes up, all of them will fly away and disappear. What this highlights, 
is a complete destruction of a nation from its armed forces to economic structure all the way down to the governing power. And who could do this? God, God alone, with particular set of skills, comes to absolutely destroy evil personified in Assyrians. And here, Nahum summarizes what God is going to do, saying, you have no chance against God. Chapter 3, verse 5, I am your enemy. That's one of the most scary verses in the scripture. Do you know that? When God stands and says, I am your enemy, the God of the universe, the whole world that he's able to create says, I am your enemy, says the Lord of the heaven's armies. And now I'll lift up your skirts and show all the earth your nakedness and shame. Going to say, I'm going to shame you and destroy you. And Jonah's warning against Nineveh when he sinned, he said that in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown comes true, doesn't it? In their continuous evil, Nineveh is leveled. By 612 B.C., the city is destroyed, plundered, divided, and Nahum prophesied in verse 1-8, but he will sweep away his enemies in an overwhelming flood, Passover flood. The wall of Nineveh, as we see from history, once mighty, unpenetrable, is literally destroyed by overwhelming flood itself. Flood comes, the city's walls are broken down, opening the wave, so the destruction of Babylonians and Midian army comes and levels the city. And to this day, the site of the city has been left unoccupied for centuries since. As historians cite, today, Nineveh's location is marked by two large mounds, Kriya Enik and Navi Yenis. That's it. And Prophet Jonah and the remains of the city walls, just about 12 kilometers, seven miles in circumference. And that's it. Church, when God is against evil, what we find is they stand no chance. There's no defense against it. And the utter judgment of evil will come to ruins. And what we see and hold on to in the light of the evil that is rampant in the world today is to remember that God stands against evil and he will eventually destroy it. And church, that comes to us as hope. But it also comes to us as a warning, doesn't it? As we wrestle with this evil in the world today, what we see is that God will not turn away in a blind eye. He sees it. It may seem like he's not moving yet, but we see throughout the history time and time again in God's timing, God promises judgment. He will not let evil merely be passed over, but his judgment will be complete in overcoming evil, passing over evil in destruction. The question that you and I must answer as we wrestle with this prophecy is, Yes, that we see in the evil today. Yes, we recognize evil as it is. But are we in place of evil? Are we in place of standing before the Lord, in standing before the Lord in sin and evil and saying, I hate God, or are you on the side of God, waiting for God to come with his hope, with his restoration? And that's the warning Nahum gives. God sees evil. He will punish. He will overcome evil. Where are you standing with the, with the Lord this morning? That's the question that Nahum asks. But not only so, 
The second part we see is not only God sees and passes over evil, but God will eventually see evil be passed over in due time. God will eventually see evil be passed over in due time. Greek philosopher Aristotle once said, anybody can become angry. That is easy. But to be angry with the right person and to the right degree and at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way, that is not within everybody's power and it's not easy. Any parents will testify to that and say, amen, that's hard. But I think it's universal, regardless you're parenting or not. I think he's right on because nobody can have the righteous anger like this. Only one person can, and that's God of the Scripture. Because as we look at God promising eventual victory of evil, we still wrestle with the question of, why would God not do this right away? If God thinks this is so evil, why not right away? Even for the audience of Nahum's prophecy, they're in the thick of Assyrian's dominance. And granted, indeed, the time of Sennacherib's invasion, we see the temporary relief that God moves his mighty army, angel of death comes, and the Assyrian army that is about to invade Judah is decimated. And we see the full destruction of the army that is about to destroy Judah. We get the temporary relief. But what we see is, even after Nahum's prophecy, Assyrians don't die away right away. Scholars often say that it is actually about 90 or 100 years until after Nahum's prophecy that the Syrians are completely destroyed. And perhaps, just perhaps, people who are listening to this might wonder, why not now, Lord? Like, why not now during my lifetime? Not my children's lifetime, not my grandchildren's lifetime, but what about now? Can you do something about, like, today when I go home? When I wake up tomorrow morning, can you just... Just wipe out the evil in the face of the earth? Can you just remove that evil boss out of my way? Can you just take these evil things away from my life today? Why do we have to wait for a long time? Why do we have to wait until the, the mercy and justice comes on this system of injustice? Why do we have to end, uh, wait for the ending of suffering to come? We want sin eradicated once and for all. We want cancers to be wiped out. We want no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering of consequence of sins. Why not now? Is often at the heart. Not only is of why would God let evil flourish, but why would God let not evil die out today? And I wish I had an answer to all of that, but what we see in the scripture is we ought to cry those questions and tears with the world today, saying, how long, O oh Lord? There's no shortage of those prayers prayed throughout the scripture. If you're in that boat today, wondering and wrestling in these puddles of tears and suffering, wondering how long, how much longer am I going to suffer in this thing, just go through the book of Psalms. Go throughout the Old Testament even in the New Testament, as the church suffers persecution upon persecution, they don't simply sit there and have good theology in their mind and say, this is, I got this. They cry to the Lord and say, how long, O oh Lord? How much longer are we going to suffer at the hand of our enemies? In fact, even in Revelation, we see the similar cries coming from chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. From who? From the martyrs. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. 
They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? You see, even from Apostle John's vision, is that God's will is not yet done. Because verse 11 says, Then a little white robe was given to each one of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were to be martyred, has joined them. Do you hear that? You see, God is at work, John reminds us. And we're living in this world of already not yet, meaning God has completed the work but on the cross by Christ coming and dying and rising again. But we're also living in the restoration phase, meaning as we long for the full return of Christ, the hardships, the martyrdom, the death of Christ is under the God's sovereign plan that he's working And we also get a glimpse of why God may be moving at this speed coming from Apostle Peter. We actually don't have that scripture up here because I gave the wrong chapter. But it comes from 2 Peter 3, verse 8 through 10. This is what Peter says, But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly as a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire. The earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Church, what Peter reminds us in that text is this even period that we suffer is under the grace of God. Meaning, he's not slow to move as people think, but he intentionally is waiting because his desire is for people to turn to him in repentance. When the judgment comes, he wants the sinners to repent and come before the Lord. Because oftentimes when you ask, why does evil exist in this world? And why would evil not be wiped away? We assume that we are in the clear. Therefore, I'm good. Let's get rid of the old, the bad people. I am good. Let's get rid of all the evil people around me. I am a good worker. Let's get rid of the boss because he's evil. I am a good student. Let's get rid of all my competition because they're evil, they're cheating. Hey, I'm a good person. All these people are evil around me. That's assumptions that we have. But scripture is absolutely clear. We saw it throughout, have we not? And we have to read Nahum in context. Nahum is one of the 12 prophets. Other prophets said, hey, Israel, you're against the Lord. You're in sin. Come and repent. Come and repent. Time and time again, God could have simply wiped out the Israelites. But he sends prophets upon prophets to prophesy and say, come back to the Lord. Repent of the Lord. Repent of your sin and come back to the Lord. In fact, that's what we see in prophet Jonah too, doesn't he? He goes to Nineveh and says, even the Ninevites, who are known as evil, he preaches to them and God gives him grace. This is who God is. God, full of compassion, slow to anger, abounding in grace, he wants people to repent and turn against evil. You know, in um, the Bible that you read today, Nahum comes after Micah because we follow Masoretic text, which is Hebrew manuscript that our English Bible is um, based off of. 
But Nahum is actually found right after Jonah in Septuagint, the Greek translation of Old Testament, directly after the book of Jonah. So if you read Septuagint, you read about the grace of God in Jonah for the Ninevites and the destruction of Jonah, uh, the Ninevites right afterwards. Why? To show the complementary nature of these books. They both talk about Nineveh, but Nahum shows God's response to evil, but Jonah shows God's willingness and slowness um, to anger against evil out of compassion and love. And that's what we see God is. God is not slow to respond against evil just for the sake of being, uh, being late, but rather he wants the evil, those who are flourishing in evil, to repent, come, and be embraced by the loving arms of God. But this does not negate the message, message of course, of the Scripture. Quoting Prophet Jonah when he said, Yet 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. Meaning, if you are in sin, if you are in evil, and stand against God and say, Well, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, regardless of what God tells me to do, he says, you will be overthrown. Yet, right, as prophet Jonah, as we saw, also says, yet 40 days, yet you can turn and repent towards God and receive mercy from the Lord. Church, that's the message God gives us this morning. Not only destruction of evil that is to come, but the promise of deliverance, promise of mercy of God who gives us grace to turn to him. And the question again is, where are you in your relationship with the Lord? You know, so oftentimes we think we are the good ones. We are the ones that got our theology correct. We are the ones that are righteous. You know what's the easiest test for you to check that? When you're not able to hear other people. When all the people around you are evil and you're not. When you're the only one that is righteous. That often is a sign that perhaps you are the one that's in sin. God has provided God's grace with the people of God, the scripture, to call us back into repentance. And that's the promise we find in Nahum as well. But question also still remains, what do you, what do you and I still do in the face of evil today? What do we do as we still face evil today? As we wait the coming of Christ again, where he will fully eradicate evil once and for all. What is our proper response? And I think it's so fitting that this month is Black History Month. As we celebrate the contributions of the black Americans have had on this nation. And as I shared last Sunday, when we celebrate something, we don't only talk about the joyous times, right? We don't only talk about the joyous contributions that black Americans have had on this nation, but we also must talk about the hardships they endured. We must remember the civil rights leaders, the theologians, everyday people that have labored for equal rights, the voting power, representation, the freedom. We also must recognize the evils of slavery, the Jim Crow laws and its aftermath that we still plague us today, the racial profiling, redlining, racism, police brutality. We must talk about those things. We must remember those things. In light of this, that's what it means to celebrate. As we lament of the pain and sufferings and evil that still plague us, 
and we rightly, so we pray, we cry out to the Lord together with our black brothers and sisters this month, saying, how long, O Lord, until injustice and racism is eradicated once and for all. I remember this praying lady in my home church would always tell us to pray, pray, pray. And I would say, okay, enough, right? I prayed a lot. After two hours of prayer, you say, pray a little bit more because we need to pray. And I always think, and you'd be so frustrated, just pray? Like, can we do something about this? Like, why not just pray? It's not like praying's going to feed me, right? We've got to do something. Let's put some action behind it. And I think we have to do so. But notice what these marches are and these protests are. I know sometimes we get so lost in these things, but notice what these marches and protests represent. It wasn't an appeal of power saying, I want to be in power. I want to be in power. It is actually a call for basic humanity. As we have seen throughout the unspoken documentary, this calls for changes, reform, reparations, repentance, is called for basic humanity to be recognized. Recognition of sin, simple as that. Sin of slavery and proper repentance of it is called for. Right? And we have seen the fear, have we not? The fear of the Word of God to the point where slave Bibles amid verses of God who speaks out against ill treatment of slaves and outlaw of slavery, period. So what do we do in light of all this? Just like my prayer lady said, we still ought to pray. We still ought to pray, we cry, but we also pray and cry in protest. We sometimes pray in marches. After all, Nahum cried, prophesied, protested, and dare I say, marched in wanting to see God's vengeance happen against evil. So clearly our answer is not just merely to cry, to pray, but to pray. But to how? Pray with hope. Pray with confidence. Theologian Michael Williams tells us this. In one sense, we are to continue to pray for their destruction, evil's destruction. It is all right for us to pray for them to cease to exist. But he goes on to say, for our prayers should be that they cease to exist by becoming new creation through faith in Jesus Christ. God miraculously transformed us from being his enemies to being his friends. Now he calls on us to participate in his redemptive program by our words, our actions, empowered by the Holy Spirit to eliminate a few more of his enemies in the same way. Following the same way, great theologian Martin Luther King Jr. said, against, uh, talking about Nonviolent resistance, he wrote, nonviolent resistance is a courageous confrontation of evil by the power of love. A courageous confrontation of evil by the power of love. Church, whose power and whose love? None other than God, who is slow to anger, abounding in love, who will punish evil at due time. Therefore, I urge us, Christ Central, this month, throughout our lives, that we pray, we cry just that. We march on, we protest in the same vein, and we ask God to do the rest. Come, O Lord, judge, punish evil. Come, O Lord, rescue your people. Have mercy upon this land and this nation Come, O Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
Let's pray. Father, that's our prayer this morning as we face the evil and injustice in this world, even in our own backyards, in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our society, in our schools, in our lives. We cry out with the, with the fellow saints, how long, O Lord? We also pray, pray and cry out, march and protest in the name of Christ, asking God for you to transform and change our hearts first and foremost, but with the love that you empower us to go forward in loving and changing and influencing, impacting those around us by loving them, by confronting evil, by the love of Christ that comes from you. Thank you, Lord. In Christ, let me pray. Amen.